with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series that is all about Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week. Let's get right to it. But first, I want to apologize to our guest today. Let me explain how one little typo can cause a world of hurt when you have an office that is a five-minute walk from the car for an athlete on a good day. I give instructions to guests for when they arrive at our office in West Columbus. I'd given the same instructions so many times that I do the old copy-paste and send the email invitation to guests. For this particular guest, however, I somehow completely forgot to change the date in the instructions that I had copied from another guest's invitation. As I mentioned, it's a long walk from the car to our office. On top of that, if you aren't used to the area, our office isn't easy to find. And our guests, as has happened to many others before them, got lost. Of course, they tried calling me for directions, but having another veteran in the same time slot, I had my ringer off because, well, that was busy with another veteran. Even still, our guest and his very patient wife finally did find our office building. They took that long trek from the car to the front door, all the way through the building, to the rear of the building, and up to the second floor, where they sat patiently, awaiting my arrival. For perspective, the walk from the parking lot to our office is roughly a quarter mile. No kidding. No exaggeration. A quarter mile. I dread the thought of mentioning that our guest also was 91 years old and had just taken a a fall a couple of weeks before this and was pretty bruised up, black eye and all. So for this particular podcast, we brought the equipment to him instead of having him and his wife, yet again, head all the way to the office. So before you think too poorly of me at this point, at least there's that. Now, on to our podcast. He's a 91-year-old Navy veteran and Good Conduct Medal recipient who served at the end of World War II and in the Korean War, having enlisted in June 1945, immediately after school. As World War II was coming to an end, he spent a year in New York, first several months in a separation center in Samson before transferring, being transferred to birthing facilities in Staten Island. After his service there, he remained in the Navy Reserve until being recalled for duty in September 1950 for the Korean War and spent almost two years at the Great Lakes Naval Training Center. From Upper Arlington, Ohio, that long last, Robert Sotak, welcome to Marching Orders. Robert, tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, what you do these days, activities, that kind of thing. Well, I'm, I'm retired from DOD, and uh, I have a wife and three children and four grandchildren. And uh, we got my wife's first husband was killed in Vietnam War. And so we got married when the children were four, six, and eight years old. And I uh, stayed with them. This is in my, I'm in my 48th year. And the children are doing greatly. And I'm doing well in my retirement. Uh, At 91, you don't do too much around the house. You leave it for your young wife. Two of our grandchildren have CPAs, which we're proud of. And the other two were waiting to finish college. One's going to University of Minnesota, and one's going to the University of Tulane in Louisiana. 
Your parents died when you were really young, your dad of cancer and your mom of tuberculosis. You were sent to an infant's home early on, and then you were raised, at least for much of your childhood, from roughly 1933 to 1941, in an orphanage in Columbus. What was that experience like? Do you remember a lot of it? I, I remember quite a bit of it. As, as we had the nuns that took care of us, and uh, we we were... It was almost like being in an academy. You lined up for food and for your meals, and uh, we had uh, a limit of 100, room for 100 girls and 100 boys, and the girls were separated from us, that's for sure. But You had uh, two brothers, three sisters, and you were the youngest one. Yes, uh, there were a total, total of nine of us, and I was a baby, and I still have one sister that's 102 years old, still living, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we visited her, visited her at her home in Annapolis, Maryland, and she's she's doing well. But what do you expect from a one hundred and two year old person? I can feel it at ninety one sometimes. And you graduated. Uh, you, you spent. How about your high school years, nineteen forty one to nineteen forty five? You were an East High School graduate. Yes, I graduated from East High School at, at the age of 17, and the next day, I, uh, Saturday, I joined the Navy because I had two brothers in the Navy, and if I would have waited till I was 18, I would have been drafted immediately to the Army. Yeah, you wasted no time enlisting in the Navy. In fact, right after graduation, that was in June 1945, did you have the mindset throughout high school that you couldn't wait to graduate so you could sign up? Like you said, your brothers were in the Navy already. At the time I was going to high school, I remember Pearl Harbor Day, I was uh, in the living room with my sister Anna and her family, and and I, uh, I was just scared of the war, and I felt sorry for my brothers. I said some prayers for them especially my younger brother, who's two years older than I am. He was a signalman, and he went to, uh, he, he went on the merchant ships, and he went over to England when they had the V-2 rockets, and he had to duck some of those. And then he went the opposite direction, and they set him up in a, at Anahuitoc, an atoll in, in the Pacific. My other brother, I lost track of him because he was stateside, and I was too, but we didn't have uh, phone numbers or where we could reach each other. And your sister's husband had died in the first B-29 raid in Japan. That was June 44. Did his death contribute somewhat to your decision and to your brothers? Like we said, two of them were in the Navy. Did they play a role in you and your decision to join? I always wanted to get go to the Navy because of my two brothers, and I'd heard so much about the Army that I, uh, I'd rather be on the water than on the land. And you were stationed in Sampson, New York, and Staten Island at a birthing facility. What was your role there, and for how long? All right, at Sampson, New York, I, uh, it took them some time before they sent me to Sampson. I waited till August the 13th, I had to wait uh, at the 
post office building downtown at State and High Street, State and Third, and I waited there every Saturday until finally on August 13th, we were given orders to uh, uh, go to the arm, uh, to go to the railroad station and catch a train. And we didn't know where we were going. Next morning we were in Buffalo, and all of us that were on the train were uh, sleeping in Buffalo Station. We were so tired because the, uh, it was difficult sleeping on the train. And then we uh, took a train out of Buffalo toward uh, Samson, New York, and I, we, there was a lake there, Lake Geneva, and there was also a town called Lake Geneva. The station was, uh, Samson, New York was still 24 miles away, and the train, somehow the train got us there, and we were, we unloaded, and we were taken off. We had to take off all our clothes except our underwear, and threw them in a pile. And, and then we started our, uh, we started our physicals, plus getting shots. And it's, it's, I don't know whether I should describe the shots, but you stood out there and one, one medic would throw this side and the other medic threw that side into your shoulders. And there were, some, there were quite a few people that fainted. And, uh, and that was that. I, I didn't feel it at all, you know, it was okay. And then, then they took blood and they had a, a, about an eight, 10 gauge needle with pointed, that was, had a point on it. They stuck that in your arm and put a tube, test tube, uh, on the needle, and they drew blood that way. And I might say there were a few of them that fainted with that too. And that was our introduction to the Navy. Mm. <laughs> and what did what did you do when you were once you finally got to your destination? Okay, they lined us up. We we went to the supply area, and they if you didn't know the your shoe size, you were stuck with maybe one that wouldn't fit. And uh, they gave you your uniforms, your outfits. And uh, and then they sent you over to your barracks. And the barracks, we had 120 in the barracks, plus a, a company officer who was a, a graduate out of Boots maybe two or three months earlier and then he was trained to take care of new boots, new boot, uh, new Navy personnel. And uh, about the third week, he uh, he was standing on the table, and I looked at his shoes, and they were my <laughs> my new loafers, and they had a penny in each uh, each one. I can remember that distinctly. But while he was on the table, he asked who who could type, so I raised my hand, and he sent me over to uh, report to a lieutenant in Netherbury's, and we were going to take a typing test. So I was close to the typewriter, and the typewriter was in Underwood, and that's what I had in school for three years. So I sat down and started typing, and yet I could hear the other seven or eight 
fellows say, oh, we can't type that fast. And they sent me to uh, regimental headquarters, and I uh, worked there. We had the commanding officer who was a commodore, and he was the last commodore in the Navy, and they, they changed it to a rank of captain, I think, instead of commodore. We had no more commodores in the Navy. And uh, he had his office, and then there was a warrant officer had his office, and then the fellow I worked with, or who taught me what I was supposed to do, we had our office. And we did the, uh, the daily bulletins and different things that uh, required in regimental headquarters. However, it did have its perks. I, was, I didn't have to get up at 5.30 in the morning. I got up at 7. And I had a special card for the mess hall. And I didn't have to wait in line. I didn't have to do any more drilling. And I had an, one extra day of liberty. And uh, I did, all I had to do was take my shots whenever they came up. If I had to renew any shots, I took those. And that was the end until the ninth week when I got a two-week uh, uh, two vacation to go home. And then when I returned, little did I know, but they sent me to a separation center to work in the dispersing office there where we closed out pay accounts for those that are being separated. And, uh, and Believe it or not, I ran into, they, they had the pay accounts in groups, of, in stacks of 30, and those, those 30 people that were being processed walked by, and here I run into a Leonard Sotak, felt the same way mine was. And he could have cared less that my name was Sotak. <laughs> <laughs> he was from Pittsburgh. And, and that was it, I worked there for several months and then they decided to send my friend and I, we were the only ones from Ohio at Samson and also birthing facilities. So we got to be real good friends. And he was from Cleveland. He was a wrestler in high school. And uh, we, we just got along real well. And, and sometimes when we had liberty, I'd go, to, I'd go to his house, he had a Catholic Catholic mother and a Jewish father, but they did real well with him. He, he was an, he made an, he was a good friend of mine, and we we let, lasted that way all the way through. And at the birthing facilities, there were two things I remember the most was the battleship Missouri was on its way to. Hawaii for to be birthed there and become a museum. And we got to see that going through the Atlantic. And then another day we got to see a Russian cruiser that had in tow two rows of, of uh, landing craft. And that reminded me that in 1941, uh, Roosevelt signed an act, Lend-Lease Act, and uh, it required our allies, if they wanted equipment, we gave them war equipment, 
and they were to return it if it was in good shape at the end of the war. And that's what the Russians were doing, bringing back the landing craft. So you know the war was over. At that time, it had been over about a year. And uh, Well, I have to ask, I'd be remiss if I did not ask, did you get your loafers back? No, I didn't even <laughs> tell him. I ran into him in the hallway, and at that time you called the uh, company officer, sir. And I ran into him in the hallway, and I said, sir, you know, he said, don't call me sir. You know, it reminds me of, there's a comic in your, in your dispatch, it, the, the, and I forget the name of the comic, but the, the little girl keeps calling the other girl sir, and she says, don't call me sir. <laughs> well, you, did, you made the most of it. Funds were scarce. But like you said, you had a buddy from Cleveland you ran around with, and even as scarce as funds were, you managed to help a fella out and a couple of ladies. Tell me about those experiences helping those those two out. Well, the fellow that uh, that came up to me for a dime came up for a dime from each of us. He had a nice green suit on, and he was a good-looking man, and you could tell that he was a veteran. And but he was drunk, you know, in New York. Well. He he deserved to be drunk because of his service, I guess. And he reached into his pocket and grabbed a whole handful of coins and put my diamond in with the other ones and back into his pocket went the rest of the coins. And, uh, and one time we were walking by a subway opening the stairway and two girls came up and they asked us if they... And they asked us for a quarter, so we gave them a quarter. But uh, the reason why the money lasted so long was Staten Island Ferry, which we took many a time. It was a nickel one way, and the subway system was only a nickel one way. And you could ride all day for that nickel if you wanted to, if you knew the subway, and that's what we were learning. And uh, one time, well, this got to be later on when we, when I got my uh, reimbursement, we got to go, well, uh, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I had one of my jobs was to get a stack of tickets that gave you a free, it was free for uh, many places in New York. And uh, one pair of tickets I got from my buddy and I was, we got to see Joe DiMaggio play baseball at Yankee Stadium. Oh, wow. And then, this will surprise you, they had radio programs, and 19-year-old Frank Sinatra was on Your Hit Parade, which was a Saturday night radio program. And they, they had the 10 most popular songs and here he is down there. We're way up in the balcony, but we could tell that was him because the stand, the mic stand, was shaking. And and that was uh, that. Those are two things I really remember about. And, One of my favorite and, movies with him actually is with uh, I think it's From Here to Eternity with Burt Lancaster. I love that movie. It's got Frank Sinatra in it and uh, um, Montgomery Clift. That's a great movie. June 1946, World War II is over. Did you put your name in for re-enlistment and were about to be promoted 
What happened? Oh, okay. Uh, we, my buddy and I took the test first, and we passed, both passed, but we weren't promoted immediately. And I thought, well, I'm going to stay in the Navy and make a career of it. So I called personnel and put my name in. They said, we'll get back to you. Well, somehow or other, within the next five weeks, our names appeared on the separation list. So I had to teach a person my job. My job was to coordinate railroads for the people going to Lido Beach for, for a discharge. And there was as many as 3,000 at one time would go to Lido Beach. So anyway, my name got on there and his, my buddy's name got on. And uh, when we were at Lido Beach, it took three days to get processed. The third day, there was another load came from, uh, where they, they came from Staten Island, and a fellow hollered out, hey, SOTAC, Chief so-and-so looking for you to re-enlist. Mm. <laughs> and I forgot all about the promotion until I got in, the, you know, got uh, into the reserves and started attending Wednesday night meetings. Could ask you a little, a little bit about your buddy and you. Your buddy was a dancer. You were a roller skater, at least at first. But then you decided you wanted to be a good dancer, and you eventually were. Take us through that. How did uh, all that come about, and how did it end up? Well, when I got home, I thought, when I, when I got my job, I had a job at $23 a week at uh, Commercial Motor Freight. And I had a stack of invoices, and I'd use the uh, calculator and go through all those invoices. And I might find two that were incorrect. <laughs> so anyway, I, someone told me about being a veteran that the old Army Depot was hiring veterans. So I went out there, and they hired me rather quickly at $75 every two weeks. So that's thirty-seven fifty a week. So I told them at Commercial Motor Freight that I was going to go out there. They offered me a $5 raise, but that didn't match what the government had, plus the perks. They gave you perks, you know, you're covered with your hospitalization and everything. And I stayed with them until, that was 46, October 46. And, I, and up came uh, June 25th, 1950, I was scheduled to, for a two-week cruise to Jamaica. They canceled that, and they sent me to Bayonne, New Jersey. Anyway, we had pay accounts. We had, in our classes, we had pay accounts. We were learning how to do those. Well, we did, already knew how to do them, but uh, anyway, it was a refresher course. And I was a storekeeper second class at that time. And so I was, I was, oh, I did get my promotion. And I was, oh wait, I was the highest rated enlisted man in the barracks. So I had to lead them to the mess hall and to school and back and forth. And uh, the last day on a Friday we had a test and the instructor gave me a 99. I said, how come you gave me a 99? 
he said, well, he said, you didn't put a period here. And I said, well, you've got a line there that separates dollars from cents. And, and he said, well, I don't give out hundreds. Mm. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, right? So guess what? <laughs> I didn't march my people back. I let them run back the, the way they wanted to. <laughs> let's, let's get forward, September 1950. We're about three months into the Korean War, and you were recalled to service from the reserves. How did that call come? Were you expecting it? Were you doing oh, dispersing yes. training at the time? Yes, I got a choice go in August or September. So I chose September. However, when I got separated, if I'd have taken August, I would have got separated three months earlier. <laughs> so in September, I, I got separated in, I think it was July of, of 52. And then uh, I stayed in the reserves they kept sending me notice, you know, stay in the reserves. Finally, they gave me a card that said, you're discharged from the reserves, because I didn't want any more calling back. And I, and I quit attending, you know, the weekly meetings, Wednesday meetings. So at one point, you're ordered to report to the Great Lakes Training Center. The next several days were pretty eventful. Walk us through those events. There were there were three days of processing. Uh, there was a, a VFW party that was pretty fun, but but the very next day, obviously, there was a, a rather, I guess, tragic event. Describe those describe those days there. Just those few days. Yes. Okay. Our first day there, I was li I was lined up, and I had my uh, well the, my rate was changed from storekeeper to dispersing clerk. DK2. I got my promotion in reserves based on the test that I had after World War II. And I got in line there and the, some yeoman, he's checking me off and he says, did you get your promotion in reserves? I said, yeah. He says, well, you're, you're DK3 now. You're not a two anymore. We don't honor reserve promotions. Little did I think to tell him that I took that test in after World War II. But anyway, I, that's when I decided not to re-enlist. However, I go, go back, back a little bit when I got to, uh, when I got my orders to report to Great Lakes. Uh, my sister lived in the one that lost her husband with the B-29. She sent me a letter and said she got a boy there that's rather poor if I'd send her some clothes. So I sent her a big box, all my clothes, including my tux from dancing and everything else. And shoes, patent leather shoes, I just sent the whole thing because I was going to stay in. But at that time when he dropped me from a second class to third class, I decided I'm not going to stay in. So that's two times I was going to re-enlist. The first time they offered a $1,000 bonus if you re-enlisted. That's what got me to choose to re-enlist, but the chief never called me to re-enlist. At one point, there was a VFW party. 
Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish that story, did that, I? That's okay. The second, the, at the end of the, somewhere in the middle of the first day, they sent me dispersing office to help out. So the second day, this fellow came around and collected a dollar for VFW party they held every Wednesday. And uh, and the next thing I, yeah, I, I, I'd want to go and my buddy wanted to go, so we went we went to the party and we got home on maybe midnight, got to the barracks. When I got up in the morning, I'm on my way to dispersing office, well, after chow, I'm on my way to uh, dispersing office and they told me the bird, the building burned down. And the next thing I knew, I was, 63 of us were were saved. They they did away with our orders. Mine were, I was supposed to go to Sasebo, Japan at the end of the third day. Well, I didn't get there. And they kept me there. They kept 63 of us, and we were all from the Midwest. And by the time we were done in 22 months, we were real good friends, you know. We knew all about everybody and, you know, their families and all. And I had a, a good friend. He had the upper bunk and I had the lower bunk. He was from East St. Louis. And he was telling us all kind of stories about East St. Louis. <laughs> and and I looked up when when we had, uh, we, we went through uh, St. Louis to go to Kansas City when our when our daughter was stationed there, or she'd moved there with her husband, I, I stopped in to, at a uh, at some center there, and I asked the man if he had a if he had a telephone book for East St. Louis. He says, "East St. Louis, what do you want to do with East St. Louis?" He said, "No, we don't have a phone book for East St. Well, I never did get to look up his name to say hello or anything." What did they say caused the the building to burn down? Uh, the fellow that collected the money, he kept a, a window, and I guess he did this every Wednesday when they had the parties. But he kept the, a window unlocked in the girls' restroom where they had a cot. And, uh, and they assumed that he uh, fell asleep smoking, and they took mustard twice, and his was the only name that didn't, there was no answer for, you know, the muster. And the thing about it was he was, he was, uh, the papers were being worked on for a divorce, so the divorce wasn't, didn't go through, so his wife got ten thousand dollars real quick. Mm. Mm. And afterwards, you ended up with permanent orders for the dispersing office, but you worked in a temporary office in a gymnasium there, and it was some really long and grueling hours. And for several months, how difficult was that, both well, physically and mentally? Well, as young as I was, I it really didn't bother me that much, but. Uh, and then I worked for the government to begin with, and we, I worked hours for them too, overtime and all. So, uh, but we, we got all the pay accounts all caught up, 
uh, uh, onion skin copy went to Navy, uh, Bureau of Navy personnel. And so all we had to do was get those back and redo all the the peg counts. And when we were done with that, they they moved me over to a special peg counter. And when uh, sailors would come in with their peg counts, they hadn't been paid for several weeks or whatever. I'd, I'd set them up. I'd, they we always had to have a paycheck. So I would type those up for them and have them sign them and then direct them to the window where they could get paid. And that that was my uh, job there. Well, one day there you had a uh, a gentleman come in. He was dressed in civilian clothes. Oh, that wasn't there. That was in a new building. I had the same job. And we had uh, we had this fellow come in with a blue suit, white, white shirt, and tie and just looked like he just got out of a shower or something. He just looked so fresh. Big fella. And I knew he was an officer, so I went to look for his pay account after I got his name, and it wasn't there. So I went to my officer, a lieutenant, and told him, I says, I can't find, I, I think his name was Hamilton at that time, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't swear to it, but uh, I said, I can't find his pay account. He said, oh, it's in the front of the file. So I got it and helped him out and made it, got it, page it, typed up and then directed him to the, there was a different window, so I directed him there. And he thanked me for it. And when I got done with that pay account, well, he ordered, he, I asked him how much he wanted because I had that do that because I had type in the amount. wanted 400 bucks. And here I am making 54 a month. Mm. And he had 800 coming, but he only went asked for 400. And when I put his pay account back in, I put in alphabetical order. Mm. <laughs> so if he ever came back again, <laughs> I could find it. You'd know the next time. <laughs> Looking back on it all, what what's your what's your overall view of your experience in both World War Two and the Korean War? I mean, I know there's a couple of things that bother you. You had mentioned the one promotion um, going from disbursement clerk class two that got reversed just because the promotion was during an active duty. Does that still stick in your craw a little bit? Well, I always thought. In fact, when uh, Obama was president. I wanted to write to him because I had the paperwork of how much money I lost during that period of time. And uh, I think it came to 500 and some dollars. But I never got the letter off to him. And I thought, well, every once in a while I think about it and say, why didn't I tell that yeoman I took the test, you know, during World War II or at the close of World War II? But I, I've been sorry for it ever since. I suppose if I wrote to, to Mr. Trump, he would probably answer something because I did get a letter from him. Uh, I, I take a wheelchair for air flights. We have a son in Phoenix and a, and a daughter in uh, St. Paul. 
and and here I am in the wheelchair, 91 years old, and I get to Columbus, TSA, the fellow, you know, just goes all over. That wasn't bad, he was a nice gent. But when I uh, left Phoenix at Bar Harbor Airport, there was an instructor plus a new person that was just learning the job. So he starts talking, telling me about it, and I says, oh, I heard all about that in Columbus. He said, no, you have to listen to me. So I listened to him, and he went all around, and every once in a while, he and the instructor would go around a corner and talk. Well, he got so he'd come back and he'd reach into my, my, you know, my shirt collar. And then, then they went back again. He came back out and says, "Please remove your belt." So I removed it, and he fell inside all that. And they made me turn this way and that way, and they get my back. Prior to that, they were just doing the underneath the chair. So and my my palms. So I wrote him a letter and told him they need a change in that TSA. About that time you folks had in the paper about this 95-year-old woman had the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, mine was prior to that. So I wrote him and told him about it. And I got a letter from him. No kidding. What did the letter say? He said, well, it was a regular government the government letter that they write to everybody. Thank you for your input. He, he didn't mention they weren't specific about TSA. If you could go back and do it all over again, would you change any of it? I think so. I, I you know, I got to like in the Navy. You know, whether my brother liked it or not, I liked it, and I and I and I always had good jobs. You know, even even though we we did work that period of time, you know, uh, during the well, that was the uh, the snow year, and I got home for Thanksgiving. However, I had to leave a day early because we had all that snow, and I couldn't, uh, I wasn't guaranteed I'd get a train, and I had to be back by seven o'clock Monday morning. So Sunday morning, I walked from Whittier and Hyde to the train station in that deep snow, buses weren't running, and sat on that train for an hour, and, and it was real cold. And then finally the steam started. I could hear the pipes uh, cracking. So I got Chicago, and at four o'clock in the morning, I'm walking across a grinder, and they had snow that deep. Mm. <laughs> and I got to, got home. However, uh, coming from uh, from Great Lakes, we had a fellow that had a car and three other people beside myself, five of us, drove home. Uh, he drove us home. And uh, the other four called up. I wasn't smart enough. They called up and asked for an extension. They got the whole week. Mm. <laughs> there wasn't any snow by the time they came back. You served in two wars. How difficult was it for you to adjust to civilian life after the Korean War? I know you were still young. You were still in your 20s. You were 17 when you uh, enlisted for World War II. And, and then you, you did stay in the Department of Defense until 86. So it was sort of quasi-civilian. But what was that adjustment like even still? Okay, after the Korean War, 
the uh, I was supposed to get my job back because you know the I was called up and interfered with my job and I had to leave my job and I had a boss that I, you know we got along so well that I even went to his house and played cards you know played poker once in a while but didn't lose very much we had, it was just a friendly game and uh, he said yeah he said when you when you come back we'll get your job back well when I came back it was Ju July the 2nd and I wanted to get paid for July 4th so I went into I went over the depot and I think it was called something else at that time but I went over there and I went to the person that they had a personnel person in his own office in the engineering area where I worked before and I went in to see him his name was Ballinger and he says Bob he says I don't have a job for you so he says come back next week and I had to wait 120 days that doesn't sound like a week well I, I say every week I went in however security people caught me sneaking in mm. <laughs> sneaking into that office so they came after me and they took me over to their headquarters and I gave them the scoop I said I was supposed to have that job the day I got back when I asked for it and my boss wasn't there any longer there was someone else and I found out that he and I didn't get along very well I went over well they took me to they, they had me go over to administration building and I got it work that day mm. and they said if you would have come to us you would have had a job that very day June July 2nd final question for you what advice would you give to other military veterans who might be uh, just struggling in sort of their post-military career, trying to figure out what they want to do with their civilian lives, what advice would you give to them? Well, that, that's kind of a tough question because I really didn't have that problem until, you know, except for that 120 days. But the advice I'd give to them if they can't find a job is go to the government and look for a job because they they have them open for you in fact uh, when eisenhower was in he had all service civil service people take a test and if you failed that test you were out well as a veteran i got five points five points extra my grade came back 102 because <laughs> i'm still fresh you know from mm -hmm. from being so young and you know when when you're in, when I was in the Navy, I had to take we took tests for three days when I first went in. I remember that uh, we were there three days, eight hours a day. Robert Sotak, thanks for joining us, and thanks for your service, listeners. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders, or let us know if a veteran you think should tell us his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews dot com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. Check us out at thisweeknews.com or follow us on one of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at thisweeknews. That's at 
This Week News. I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.